0: I think if you open your mind to the possibility that we're right, it's not insensitive, it's actually crucial. Why would Canadians
1: want to build their foreign policy and their domestic policy on a lie? You just heard Graham McQueen. Graham was a member of the organizing committee of the Toronto hearings held on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And the clip you just heard was with a reporter introducing the hearings as conspiracy theory. Graham McQueen died last week on April 25th. He was 66 years old. As you will hear, Graham was revered by several prominent witnesses as a guiding light in 9-11 truth. He did not boast and yet brought extraordinary knowledge and rigorous disassembling of the official narrative of the September 11th attacks to the public. I'm Michael Welch, and you are listening to this Global Research Hour. A joint effort paid for by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced by campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Dine, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. On today's special broadcast, we pay tribute to Graham McQueen's research into 9 11, but also into the deep academic, activist, and spiritual influences that helped paint the picture of a remarkable figure influencing the individuals acquainted with his writing and his speeches. We'll be providing over the next hour several individuals who were influenced by him in some way. We will start with Barry Zwicker, a veteran journalist and media critic. He was also the first media person in Canada to broadcast a skeptical account of 9-11.
2: I would start by saying that when I first met Graham, the first thing I learned about him was that I would not learn from him about his remarkable accomplishments. For instance, that he founded the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster University. I have zero recollection that he told me that. Of course, the functioning of my memory, or should I say low-functioning memory, is a factor here. But I think that those with superior memories who knew him will tell you how deep was his humility. Even when Graham spoke about experiences he had overseas promoting peace, he never approached blowing his own horn. So I don't know when or how I learned that he became a Buddhist, but we did have in common that we were both sons of the Mance, in both cases, a United Church of Canada manse, and we both grew up in the Maritimes. I'd become an atheist Christian humanist, so we had in common a non-theistic and questioning approach to everything. Now, we met because, and had in common that, we both understood the evidence was overwhelming that the official story of 9-11 was a big lie and that this was very important. Some of the deepest and most lasting friendships I've been blessed with are based on that common recognition. And I was able to tell Graham that in an email on March 16th. And I'll quote from that email. If I may, I wrote, I wrote to, to, to Graham this day, reminds me again of the odd, unintended byproduct of the massive deception of 9-11, the finding of fellow spirits such as yourself and those you thank in your acknowledgments, and others who remain close friends and associates still 22 years later. Now, about the reference to this day, an hour before I wrote that, that email, I'd received a link Graham sent me and three others with an attachment. And the attachment was the Pentagon B movie, a brilliant analysis that Graham and Ted Waller of New York had produced. They found 169 video clips of news coverage from the day of 9-11, in which journalists and others reported the demolition explosions in the Twin Towers. But the clips then showed that that reportage was replaced within hours, by carefully planned and executed propaganda by official and other mouthpieces. So I'd read the Pentagon B movie right away as soon as he sent it, and I wrote Graham, quote, it was not too soon to declare that the Pentagon B movie is a tour de force, a profoundly important work that's compelling, highly informative, and inspirational to those of us tilling the same ground, trying to expose what's beneath the surface of the U.S. empire and its deranged brainchild 9-11, yeah, quote unquote. He and I also had in common that we organized public inquiries into the truth of, of truths, I should say, about 9-11. And we both authored books on this. And his book uh, in 2014, the 2001 Anthrax, Deception, Case for Domestic Conspiracy, is a model of superior research and writing. And that also applies to his 2016 book, the October 22, 2014 Ottawa Shootings, Why Canadians Need a Public Inquiry. But I'm not sure how many people know about his 2022 book, Journey to the City of Six Gates. As soon as I found out about it, I bought it. And trite as it is to say, I could not put it down and read it in one evening. It has earned five stars out of six on Goodreads, where the summary of it includes this. Its heroes, their 14-year-old princess and a 12-year-old brother, must discover how to deal with injustice without descending to the level of their violent persecutors. Through contemplative, poetic incantation and robust, uncluttered prose, it weaves into its fabric issues such as the status of women and care for the forests, unquote. Graham set the story in ancient India long before the region acquired that name. And I want to say Graham was literally a gentle man. Even when he said he was angry about the lies of 9-11, he did not shout it. All the more you knew it was true. I don't recall again, my, my memory is... Uh, an issue here, that he ever expressed anger at a person or persons he would name. He was not a complainer. His spirituality was deep and profound. When I last saw him at a meeting late last year at a friend's home, along with five other friends, he went on longer than usual on the question of some kind of afterlife. Befitting his intelligence, his philosophy, and his Buddhism, he treated the question as a highly complex one, one challenging our deepest understandings. And I don't mind saying I was spellbound by what he was saying and thinking as he spoke how deeply respectful I was of him. He had stage four cancer of the prostate. He was not fooling himself about his mortality. He was exploring it as deeply as he explored everything.
3: My name is Ted Walter, and I've been active in the 9-11 Truth Movement since about you know 2006, 2007. Uh, I've uh, done a, a variety of things over the years. Most recently and most notably, I was with architects and engineers for nine eleven truth for eight years. Um, I uh, I came to know Graham McQueen. Uh, I would say probably around like two thousand ten or two thousand eleven, and you know I I had I was familiar with his research prior to that. I thought I've always regarded him as one of the the leading lights of of the nine eleven truth movement and an incredible advocate for for peace and justice and so through my own activism over the years, I I got to know him better and better. We collaborated on more and more projects, um, you know, from, from the period of around, you know, say 20, 2013 until up until the present. Um, And, you know, we ended up publishing a few articles together and ended up doing some really um, critical work uh, just in the past year and in the past few months before his passing. I would say that like the most important and concrete work that, Graham and I did together uh, was to study approximately 70 hours of uh, continuous live news coverage from the day of 9-11 and looking at uh, all of the major uh, networks in the U.S. and cable news channels and some of the local channels as well in New York. Of the 25 reporters who we found who described the destruction of the buildings, 21 of them uh, described it as an explosive event, or as an explosion accompanying the destruction, and only four of them described what might be interpreted as, you know, the colla- just the building collapsing due to fires or structural weakening, or not men- even just not mentioning ex- explosions. Um, so, so some whatever that is, like eighty-four percent, roughly, of the reporters who witnessed it and described what they witnessed, um, that's what they that's what they talked about. The bigger number that I mentioned, the 36 is it was not only was it people who witnessed it, but then for several hours after that was the narrative floating around among reporters on the scene. It wasn't just I saw it, it was an explosion. It was, oh, earlier the two towers, the explosions that brought the towers down. It, it was pretty important finding and it built off the earlier work that Graham had done dating all the way back to 2006, um, of uh, you know, that there was you know first looking at the oral histories of the fDNY firefighters and personnel finding that about one hundred and eighteen out of five hundred just volunteered and they as they were telling their stories of that day that that they witnessed an explosion uh, or explosions when the towers uh, were going down so um it was pretty important findings uh and the uh, second part of that analysis was as I mentioned before looking at how how the narrative then shifted uh what what were the tactics that were employed to uh supplant the the story that was coming from reporters on the ground and you know we were able to identify a few different a few different um tactics uh one of which was to actually bring bring an engineer or some sort of building expert onto television to tell us that it, oh no it was it, it it was obviously the the jet fuel and it was incredibly hot and must have weakened or melted the steel and so on and so forth so that was one tactic and then the other tactic was to just start beating the the war on terror narrative from the very, very, you know, less than a minute after the uh, second plane hit the uh, second tower, uh, Fox News was talking about Osama bin Laden. So um, it was just about hitting that narrative repeatedly without any sort of real evidence um, and ignoring the evidence that was coming from people at the scene. Graham was an incredibly encouraging, uh, collaborative, uh, person. He he kind of saw the best in everybody around him. And he was just able to bring it out um, and 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 really encourage others to um follow their own follow their path and and contribute everything they could. Um, you know, he did some really important work in his own right, but it's the the sort of the team player that he is, um, the collaborator, um, just such a loving person. And for me personally, I felt that you know I think I ended up doing and have done so much more in my activism around 9/11 uh, because of Graham because Graham encouraged me to keep going um, and always had kind words uh, to share uh, when I when I was doing something. So I I think that more more than anything, um, his effect on everybody around him was so positive. Mm-hmm. He he contributed some fundamental things to the body of research and knowledge about the events of 9-11, uh, starting with his analysis of the eyewitness accounts, uh, also looking at, he, he, he contributed something fundamental on the physics side, which was to look at the downward motion of the North Tower as it came down and to uh, realize that it never slowed down as it was coming down. And if it, if it were actually, if the top were actually crushing the structure below it, it should be we should be able to see it slowing down. And so he wrote a very seminal paper on that called The Missing Jolt, which I encourage people to go back and look at. Um, and then his, you know, incredibly uh, exhaustive analysis of the anthrax attacks and his uh, linking of the anthrax attacks to the 9-11 attacks as parts of essentially the same operation by uh, essentially the same cast of players. Um, and so his, his book about the anthrax attacks is, really essential reading for anyone who wants to understand uh that part of that part of our history and to steer our world in a better direction um he he was he was a guiding light for the for the 9-11 truth movement and I think that the movement um is going in his last days he helped um found a new organization which is going to launch very soon called the International Center for 9-11 Justice um which is a, a new iteration of an organization that started back in 2008 called the international center for nine 11 studies that hosted the Toronto hearings in 2011, which Graham was a, a big part of organizing. Um, and so Graham was, um, instrumental in bringing together this new organization, international center for nine 11 justice that, um, others, others around him and myself feel is going to sort of be a leader in the next phase of the nine 11 research and nine 11 public, public education. Um, and so, uh, that that organization, among other things, among his works, his his writings and, and his teachings and so on, will be hopefully uh, one aspect of his legacy um, going forward.
0: I'm Richard Gage. I'm the founder and former CEO of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. For, gosh, 18 years now, we've been... Uh, uh, hammering at the wall of denial in this country and around the world about the truth of what really happened to the World Trade Center skyscrapers on 9-11. And uh, I'm now uh, working independently with my wife at richardgage911.org. And we are all over it, uh, busier than ever, with more uh, podcasts, more radio interviews, and more speaking engagements than ever. And um I'm uh, particularly uh, disturbed by the passing of Graham McQueen. He was such a, a sweet, sweet soul uh, who dedicated himself. You know, he was all from the heart, but his scholarly uh, strategies and, and, and uh, uh, elucidation of very, very difficult subjects in, in 9-11 Truth, and certainly in his own Buddhist studies, uh, is, uh, it, it's, it's just a huge loss uh, for all of us, particularly in the 9-11 Truth movement, where Graham shined for us so very much. Graham uh, started, I think at the journal of nine 11 studies uh, publishing there and becoming its editor for about five years, uh, starting with the deep analysis in 2005, uh, we had uh, the fire commissioner of New York. He took 503 oral testimonies of the first responders. And, you know, we didn't know any, of this, what they had said, it was kept hidden by mayor Giuliani. But finally, uh, Graham, uh, found that the, uh, th- th- through the efforts of, of the family members and others, the New York court state of appeals forced the city to release this information to the American people. And Graham found that through deep research of the 12,000 pages of written testimony that, uh, 118 of these first responders in his first pass, now 156 in his second pass uh, of, of the testimonies reveal that these first responders are talking about uh, hearing sounds of explosions, seeing explosions, being blown around the buildings by explosions, being killed by explosions. Uh, and this is an incredible body of testimony that he delved deeply into and produced for all of us uh, through this patient patient research. these essays, uh, which David Ray Griffin uh, had picked up and ran with and which is a forms a core of the explosive testimony of my work, uh, the DVD 9 uh, eleven uh, Explosive, Evidence experts speak out. Uh, Another is uh, an essay called Waiting for Seven. So he just dove into the testimonies of the first responders primarily and uncovered that, you know, they were told that Building Seven was going to come down. They were told that an engineer had put a transit on the building and that it was leaning or bulging. And of course, if that was true, the building would have tipped over. But it wasn't true. It was a story that was given to them as the reason they're not fighting the scattered fires that were in Building 7. So they're all being uh, kept away. And there's this whole story that Graham beautifully uh, crafted full of uh, testimony uh, and uh, uh, essentially proving that uh, this is all Uh, nonsense that uh, the evidence does show in the end that building seven was blown up with uh, explosive uh, and incendiary material so that's the subject of of uh, of my work Uh, but then graham also uh, wrote a whole book on the anthrax letters you remember those that came out in october of 2001 well uh, he just laid it out as only he can do from beginning to end proving that these anthrax letters did not come from islamic fundamentalists could not have neither could the anthrax itself uh the anthrax itself was uh u.s uh made in the most sophisticated laboratories that we have here um He was also for five years on the, the committee uh, that David Ray Griffin and Elizabeth Woodworth formed uh, to uh, establish the most essential evidence that 9-11 uh, was, in fact, an inside operation. And he parsed. Uh, the testimony of others through his incredible intellect, he found out that, gosh, there are cameras that are standing on tripods that are looking at the South Tower and the North Tower because he covers that as well. The towers collapse. So the cameras are looking at the towers. They shake. And then the towers come down. Well, why do they shake? Because of explosion. So they corroborate the uh, oral histories of of the first responders and vice versa, uh, so it's an integral, uh, corroborative, uh, self-corroborating uh, set of evidence that uh, Graham Ma- Ma- Graham McQueen just just took to town. So yes, uh, we owe him an incredible uh, debt of gratitude for all of this incredible, amazing work that he he uh, left us with. His latest work is a compendium all of his works and it's extraordinary. And it's called Pentagon, the Pentagon's B rated movie. And uh, boy, does he do the job uh, in, uh, in, in dismantling the entire thing from beginning to end through the series of essays and, and episodes of this uh, most recent book, which I mean, was just completed uh, before his untimely death. I called Graham uh, about a year ago uh, because we were talking about including him in our video. So I wanted him to appear in the film talking about uh, much of this evidence that he had developed. I got uh, I got to him too late, though, and it was very sad. We <clears throat> He wasn't feeling well at the time, and uh, he only felt worse and worse as time went on. So I didn't have the, uh, the honor of having him or his testimony uh, personally delivered in the film, 9-11, Crime Scene to Courtroom. But I had a wonderful talk with him and uh, we shared, uh, we talked about meditation and, uh, and, and Buddhism and it was a deep uh, uh, connection uh, that we had after working together all these years more formally He's, he had appeared in several of the efforts we did, including 9-11 Justice in Focus, a, uh, a, a set of panels with legal experts who were interviewing experts like Graham uh, uh, publicly in 2016 in New York. Uh, a, a really special uh, opportunity for those to see Graham uh, at his best. Uh, I encourage you to see uh, 9-11 Justice in Focus in his testimony at that panel.
4: Next is James Corbett. Thank you, Michael, for this opportunity to reflect on the life and work of Dr. Gray McQueen. And while I should state up front that I cannot claim a close personal friendship with Dr. McQueen, I, at the very least did, unlike many of the people that I've had the chance to interview over the 16 years that I've been doing the Corbett Report, I did have the chance to meet Dr. Gray McQueen in person in Kuala Lumpur in 2012 at the 9-11 Revisited Conference. And in our conversations, both on and off camera, uh, we spent a lot of time in conversation over those few days. And I did get to at least sense who Dr. McQueen was and what he was motivated by, and although there is no doubt that he was a genuinely thoughtful, um, deep thinker and, and a scholar through and through, uh, that certainly was uh, a, an aspect of his character. I think I could also sense that underneath the very stoic exterior, there was a burning passion in Dr. McQueen for truth, for justice, and for peace, and that should be evident from his biography. Uh, co-founder of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster University, someone who was an award-winning teacher teaching undergraduate studies on uh, peace studies, Uh, someone who wrote about the subject at length in various scholarly articles, who uh, was an editor on the board of uh, Peace Magazine, who had traveled to Afghanistan and other places to uh, discuss peace and to advocate for peace. An incredibly interesting man who had a very, very interesting career, but I think that career speaks to that passion that underlay the work that he did. The incredibly important work that I'm sure people in the alternative media space will know that he did on the subjects of 9-11 Truth and the anthrax attacks of 2001. And of course, I had the chance to interview Dr. McQueen on those subjects specifically several times over the years, but I wanted to share a personal remembrance from my final interview with Dr. McQueen, which took place in 2019. And at that time, I was working on the 9-11 Whistleblowers series, where I was examining various first hand accounts of people who had direct experience or knowledge of uh, the events surrounding 9-11, who... Uh, were pointing out the anomalies. And I was working on the piece on William Rodriguez, who was one of the janitors in the Twin Towers, who reported about the explosions that took place before the plane actually hit. And uh, in that regard, I contacted Dr. McQueen because I know he, I knew he had written one of the premier scholarly articles on the subject of first responder eyewitness testimony. In fact, he poured through the hundreds of hours of transcripts of various interviews that were done with firefighters and first responders in the immediate wake of 9-11 and wrote a very important uh, scholarly article on the subject and what we could learn about the eyewitness accounts of explosions in the buildings from that testimony. So I contacted Dr. McQueen. What I did not know at that time was that he was suffering. He was already in... His struggle against cancer and uh, he was uh, going through a great degree of medical uh, discomfort at the time but he still agreed to do the interview because he recognized the importance of that information and was truly passionate about getting that information out to others and I think it is audibly and visibly um, so that uh, in that interview you can tell that he was certainly not 100% in terms of his physical condition but he was still very much uh, motivated by a a passion for getting that information out to others. And I think, although obviously the loss of a scholar of uh, the abilities, the talents and abilities and communicative ability of someone like Dr. McQueen is a huge loss for 9-11 truth and for peace and justice generally, I think we should still take away the inspiring message of Dr. McQueen and the work that he provided under sometimes uh, adverse events and adverse circumstances, he's, his struggle to continue to press on the, uh, the, the nerves of, of power to try to uh, achieve justice and peace is, is truly an inspiring message and one that we can all take to heart as we continue to pass that information forward. And I have no doubt That as long as people are still interested in these subjects and are still trying to pass on this information about truth, about justice, about peace, I have no doubt that Dr. McQueen's life, work, and inspiration will be a part of that, informing it.
1: You are listening to a special broadcast of the Global Research News Hour a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced at CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. My name is Michael Welch, and we're dedicating a special episode to the life and legacy of the researcher and activist Graham McQueen through the voices of individuals who knew him best. Here are more of those voices.
5: Michael Kiefer, um, Professor Emeritus at the University of Guelph. I retired in 2011. I was fairly early into the uh, 9-11 skepticism issue. Uh, I think it was probably not till around 2006 that Graham became involved in, in the issue. But um, Graham was so hardworking. He went through all of the uh, first responders' evidence that the New York Times had managed to uh, make public. And you know, there were something like 140 people saying we heard explosions, we saw bombs, we saw, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he published that. He published evidence relating to the seismic uh, uh, evidence of of what had happened. He did, along with um, uh, scientific and engineering colleagues, scrupulous, scrupulous analyses of all of the video evidence to demonstrate that the uh, uh, claims being made as to how the towers had collapsed were totally fraudulent. Um, And he published that superb book on the anthrax attacks with Clarity Press, which just nails it. Um, Because it's all there. The, The evidence that uh, the people who um, did the anthrax attacks were attempting to, were pretending that it was uh, jihadi bullshit. Um, And so what Graham established was this um, body of material that was just rock solid, He was also instrumental in organizing in 2010, or was it 2011, the uh, Toronto hearings, Toronto 9 11 hearings. And um, I was very flattered to be invited to be one of the moderators of that event, which I thought was very important. And of course, we had um, people who'd done peer reviewed science, Um, we had samples of 9 11 dust um some of the scientists have brought with them. Part of what's fascinating to me about Graham, <clears throat> so soft spoken but absolutely firm. I know some of his academic colleagues tried to bully him. <laughs> what a joke. Oh he was also mm, extremely funny. Um very secretive Um, he did his Harvard PhD on ancient Pali scriptures um, and wrote fiction um, which was taken up by the educational system in India because they were eager to have um, contemporary fiction written by people who understood ancient Indian traditions. And so some of his fiction is in a uh, very, very widely used uh, school text. Um, he wrote hilarious uh, short film scripts. Like, really, really witty. Back in September, I had um, some very strenuous uh, Unsuccessful radiation treatment. Mm-hmm. We both um, hooked up for the MAID program, and I thought, damn, um, Graham's going to think I'm jumping the gun with this stupid brain tumor. Um, and I hope I haven't pushed him into precipitancy with the maid business. Um, but I d- that wasn't the case. He, Graham was in a lot of pain. He had, uh, it's really tragic because he was a very late diagnosis and, um, the, the PSA, the, the prostate antibody readings that he was getting when he was diagnosed were just astronomical. And, and you know, he was in, he'd, he'd reached the point where he was in danger of sort of, uh, uh, his thighs fracturing, that sort of thing, you know, the, the, um, the prostate cancer really starts to eat away at the bone. Um but um so he, he was but he was very much in control of of um, how he wanted it to sort out the range of evidence that he dealt with and the entirety. Because he was a very serious scholar. You know, he didn't muck around. So I think I think it'll take time. I don't think he's good. I think that work. Will endure. I said something about his his toughness, um, his his determination, um, his grasp of principle.
6: My name's Ed Curtin. Uh, I'm a writer, uh, a former professor uh, like Graham. Uh, We both uh, had a connection through uh, religious studies, uh, teaching Graham uh, in the Buddhist area and uh, mine was in the Christian area. So uh, we had a lot in common. Uh, we first uh, met uh, when Graham published his book, his, his great book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception. And I reviewed it. And uh, Graham contacted me right away after the review. Uh, and I've been promoting that book ever since, whenever I get a chance. So that's how we first met. And our friendship developed uh, over the years, and it got deeper and deeper, uh, not just about the work that he was doing and the work I was doing, which intersected, but uh, also on a personal level. Uh, We became uh, dear friends. So he was really a very rigorous, evidence-based researcher. I know that he and I uh, shared a a similar sense of humor and uh, we laughed a lot about uh, the absurdities of life, uh, the mystery of of existence of life and the mystery of death. And in our last conversation uh, before he departed, uh, he he said to me, and I thought, I I couldn't help laughing. I said, Graham, you're one of a kind, uh, saying this to me. Uh, when we said goodbye, he said, "Well, you'll be joining me soon, Ed." And and I had to laugh. I mean, I'm not sick, and I'm not. Uh, uh, I I, <laughs> I don't know what "soon" means, but it was one of a kind. You know, we both laughed very very loudly at that, but. We we would uh, we talked about all kinds of things things that uh, I don't even think I would discuss on a radio program. Well, he leaves behind a profound legacy. Uh, the The recent uh, uh, e book that uh, we we worked together to publish. Uh, we meaning Graham, myself, and. The incredible uh, David Ratcliffe, whose website it appears on, uh, uh, Radical.org. All of those articles show how he, over the years, was able to uh, connect the dots between different incidents in history, not just uh, 9-11, not just anthrax, but the assassinations of Uh, John Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, and many other false flag uh, operations that he he took apart so assiduously, again, using evidence and logic uh, in, in such a beautiful way. When you are ready and the day dawns, remember how love wraps you in its arms and the sweet sound of grace lifts you up lighter than a feather and places you on board the silent ship that sails calmly out to sea. Listen to us calling, bon voyage. Let us know when you arrive.
7: My name's Dave Ratcliffe. I have been many places in the 68-plus years I've been circling around the sun. I started the website Radical with a T on the September Equinox 1995 because I understood that the internet, which now had a front-end interface with web browsers, was a very interesting development. And I have been initially working on focus of assassination of President Kennedy and the health effects of low-level ionizing radiation. I learned about Graham from reading his go-to 2014 book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception, The Case for Domestic Conspiracy, an absolutely very, very detailed and not that long, I think it's a 160-page book, that covers such a wide swath of something that happened more than two decades ago that was certainly another one of the test runs for what humanity has been confronting for now just over the last three years with the false promise of biosecurity and the rise of the biosecurity state. I've known Edward Curtin since... Uh, meeting him at Jim Douglas's uh, workshop in Western Massachusetts in uh, December 2012 on JFK and the Unspeakable, looking ahead to 2013. Marty, Shots, myself, Ed joined Graham for a wonderful Zoom birthday party and covered a beautiful wide swath of things during that birthday party. Graham pointed out something about. What he called, uh, if we in this social movement of 9-11 descent are not willing to tell our own stories, who will tell them? Uh, it was very poignant moment because I think all four of us are very much devoted to creating records of our true living history that is... Evermore dismissed, omitted, distorted, and just covered up, censored by legacy corporate empire, state media. followed up in early October with just writing Graham a personal letter, email, and he was very sweet in his response. It was just a general thing of wanting to share some ideas with him. And he wrote back saying, he was wondering if he could ask a very mundane question, as he put it. He was, he was looking forward to Ted Walter coming to his house to do filming for a documentary on him. And he realized he needed to go back and re- review the bulk of his writing so that he could be coherent in uh, being interviewed. So he asked if I might be able to help him assemble those things and I said yes indeed sign me up be happy to help so that turned into making this digital book which began in earnest that month in October I very clearly aware of the time constraint uh, another dear dear friend of mine John Judge I met John in the 80s in California and uh, there's no one there was no one like John there was no one like Graham. John, I kept thinking for years and years and years, I need to go see John again in Washington, DC. But I didn't do it. And then he died of complications from a stroke in 2014 at the tender young age of 66. So it really helped to to push me more to realize do whatever you want to do now. Don't wait. And so when Graham brought this up in October, I thought, well, yes, absolutely. Let's go. So I pretty much dropped most everything else because I knew he might leave sooner than later. And I wanted to be able to, A, have something that he could see completed so that he could also get responses from people he knew and have that connection and that uh, visibility. And because if I wanted to ask him any questions, I needed to, excuse me, do this while I could still ask him questions. So the motivation about uh, telling our own stories was huge. And I, as I describe in the postscript at one point, I'm reading just from the text here. In a 2017 exchange with Marty Schatz, Vincent Salandria, Ed Curtin, William Whitney, Rodolfo Cardona, and me, Graham wrote about the process he explored in writing Beyond Their Wildest Dreams, September 11th, 2001, and the United States left. His motivation was, quote, to understand how people come to know the world and how we can open up closed minds, unquote. He explained some of this as his, quote, imagination approach, unquote, in the following. This, this is all Graham's writing to this group of our correspondents' email. I adopted the word, imagination, from German philosopher Gunther Anders, whose 1962 article, thesis for the atomic age, had a big effect on me over the years as a peace and environmental activist. Anders said that in the nuclear age, we are doomed if we don't have imagination. He said, the basic dilemma of our age is that we are smaller than ourselves incapable of mentally realizing the realities which we ourselves have produced. Therefore, we might call ourselves inverted utopians. While ordinary utopians are unable to actually produce what they are able to visualize, we are unable to visualize what we are actually producing. That's the quote from Anders. And then Graham goes on, He also said that escapists of today do not hide in imagination, they hide in the ivory tower of perception, because the senses are, quote, senselessly narrow, unquote. So he was giving a power to this word, imagination, that we don't normally give it. Imagination is what we give ourselves to when we have the courage to face the world, to actually visualize what is going on. It is, he says, part of the courage to be afraid. So whenever any of us is gifted by our Creator. We all have an irreducible connection to our Creator. Whatever we think is going on here, whatever we perceive as being the reality of our existence, every connection we make that is life affirming, life. Giving and devoted to life on Mother Earth expands the energy of what we are here for, which is to increase, as Carl Jung said, to increase consciousness. Graham was a magnificent embodiment, incarnation of iridescent soul whose light and love for all our relations was a fire that burned very, very brightly while he was here. We all have such a short amount of time here. It's very, very brief. Graham's life is a wonderful reminder to all of us of what is possible to create and to manifest understanding our inexorable connection to our creator and to our time here on Mother Earth. So for me, (laughs) a great, great gift was knowing very briefly, but very beautifully, Graham McQueen. In time, we will have an ebook available for sale. It will only have the text in it, so there won't be any issue with copyright control. And all the proceeds from sales of that book, meager though they might be, will be set up to be received by Graham's wife, Sharon.
8: My name is Kathleen McKay, and I do uh, energy healing, and uh, I lead meditation groups, and uh, we have a small retreat center out here at our property. Well, actually, I first heard of him many years ago because he was my brother's, uh, one of my brother's professors, and as with so many students, from what I understand, a beloved professor, actually, and so Graham and my brother actually started to um, get to know each other through activist circles as well. So I had heard about Graham when Graham got his, um, cancer diagnosis. So this is about four years ago then. And, uh, he received uh, a very dire, you know, diagnosis and a fairly dire prognosis at the same time, obviously. And so, um, he was finally then sort of referred to and nudged to come out to me to start some healing sessions as he wanted to do um, a, a combination of natural and allopathic um, medicine to work with that cancer. As we are our property and where he lives about you know two and a half hours. So it wasn't always possible for him to be able to come here for one-on-one sessions. And so then we began to do um, distant sort of phone type uh, energy sessions as well near the end there when when he knew that he was going to be passing on soon and we talked about the possibility of maybe a a memorial service or something and i said you know in the memorial service we could bring in elements of the buddhism the buddhist practice uh, to really have that part of you represented in the process and it was very funny he had the comment he said something like um oh boy my sort of my my academic my scholarly my you know activist people might might be a little sort of shocked by that and uh and i got the sense that he sort of kept them a little bit separate as it were that his spirituality and this sort of spiritual anchoring was not quite as as um Maybe just not in the forefront, not talked about as much. So you have to understand, I didn't know him in his, you know, fierce, empowered activist days. Um, when he first came to me, he was he was quite sick. From my perspective, I would say very much that his activism came forth from this deep, it was like in the heart and soul of him. He was deeply compassionate and so loving and wanting to protect. That was something that was so strong in him. And I feel that's where his activism came forth from, wanting to protect the vulnerable. And it came to me out of that. And that was that um, that spiritual that deep, soulful alignment that he had just so, so naturally. And I think the activism was just this very active and outward expression of that, his deep, beautiful, compassionate heart. There, there's a story, you might have heard this, uh, an old story about uh, there's a, a master of a, of a particular mantra and the scholar <clears throat> wanted to study with the absolute master and so he tracked this master down and you know went across the valley and across the lake and up the mountain and to the hermitage and he finally finds this master and the master invites him in and they have a cup of tea and so the scholar says all right tell me please just you know tell me your uh version of the the mantra or or enlighten me about this mantra so the master starts to talk and, and says the mantra And the scholar says, oh, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but you're saying it wrong. And the master says, oh, I didn't I didn't realize that. Right. Please tell me how to say it correctly. So the scholar corrects the master and uh, and. The scholar then goes away thinking, wow, this is, you know, how is it possible After all these years this, this great master has been doing it wrong this whole time. And so down the mountain he goes and in the boat and going across the, the lake and he looks to his side and there's the master hovering above the water on the lake and the master says, excuse me, I'm sorry to bother you, but just one last time, what was that correct pronunciation again? he's the master hovering over the water so I just want to say that was Graham that was Graham he was an, an absolute blazing master you know of light and love and compassion and but he would never show it like that you know but that was that was him he represented almost like a, a convergence point between you know his his brilliant mind and that very penetrative capacity to, to analyze and then to express and, and uh, elucidate. And the fact that that, again, as, as I said, now I saw this very much because we connected very much on the spiritual and the soulful levels. But he really, really, as I said, the point of focus of consciousness that was Graham McQueen to me represented a convergence point between that great, brilliant, mindful, worldly ability to, as I said, navigate communicate um you know analyze data all of that kind of stuff uh and this soulful spiritual very transcendent as well and whether or not that soulful aspect was in evidence in whatever talk he was giving or something like that it was in his body it was in his being it was radiating out from him and even you know sometimes with things that you know we would talk about because although he and i both you know studied the buddhism and we definitely had that in common from my study in buddhism long ago i went off in a sort of a more sort of out there cosmic kind of direction and um every now and then you know i would i would as i would talk and be explaining things you know relative to say you know your quantum your pattern in the quantum field and and i could see him he would close his eyes and be like i think we need to just slow down just for a second (laughs) (laughs) because i need to try to wrap my head around it (laughs) so even yeah even in the sort of the soulful realms right there's still that mind was still there and it was just you know um receiving and and processing information and but i think that that was absolutely brilliant even as i said his approach to cancer now as i said we we met four years ago and he was given a dire prognosis at that time so four years is he did a wonderful job and it was that he wanted to work with both the streams the the allopathic medicine and also the natural, I'm going to say, the imprint that he's left, that sort of flash of light that was him and the imprint that he's left is that he, he really was, he was an embodiment of both of those really.
1: You have been listening to a special broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced by CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional territory of the Nishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Our focus was on the life and legacy of Graham McQueen. Music was Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music, available on the site purple-planet.com. I'm Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.